You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you today. My name is Matt Nickerson, lead pastor here at Kingsway. We want to welcome everybody watching online, either live right now, on a beach somewhere. We love you even though. And uh, everybody may be joining us later on in the future at some point watching this. We pray that you would be blessed today. So uh, <clears throat> about two months ago or so, I was going to Colorado. I was joining a group of other pastors. I, I can't remember if there were four or five other pastors. And uh, we were going to do this retreat together. We've committed together for three years to meet twice a year and to talk every month by uh, Skype or Facebook or something like that. Um, FaceTime is what I meant to say. And uh, I get money every time I say Facebook. So Facebook, I'm just kidding. And anyway, um, and the goal is for us to just be in each other's lives, to just be completely open and honest and vulnerable with each other, talk about what's going on in life and encourage each other, pray for each other. And it's just a really, really good thing. We had our first retreat. So I'm getting on the plane and I didn't get all my homework done, which felt like I was in fifth grade again and I was on the school bus, except for this time I'm on an airplane. But I'm thinking to myself, no big deal. I got four hours on a plane. I'll cram in the last whatever I got left in this book and I'll just read the rest of the book on my way to the retreat. And worst case scenario, I'll finish it tonight in bed. And I'm literally praying, dear God, please don't let me sit next to anybody at all. And if you can't answer that, then anybody who wants to talk. Like everybody feels when they sit next to me on a plane. So, it turns out I'm sitting in the very last row. I'm like, okay, well, that's good, God, because I won't be able to relax. You know, you're sitting in that 90-degree position the whole ride. And uh, I sit down, and the gentleman next to me goes, oh, hi, how are you today? I, he shakes, sticks out his hand. I'm like, oh, hi, I'm Matt. And I sit down, and I say, hey, I just want you to know, man, I got a book I got to read. I got to finish this book. I got to get to Colorado. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 I was like, please don't think I'm being rude. I'm going to put my headphones on. I'm not, you know, whatever. So I go to put my headphones on. I pull out my book, and then I had to adjust. I take my headphones out. He goes, hey, what book are you reading? And I'm hoping, like, I'm hoping because my book is on um, being a pastor like Jesus and accepting the fact that I'm both human and God has called me to be spiritual. And, like, what does it mean to balance those two things? And uh, so I'm, I'm hoping by saying I'm a pastor. See, this goes one of two ways. Way number one is, in most conversations, I try never to say I'm a pastor because then people say, oh, and, like, the conversation's over. <clears throat> I'm hoping this is that conversation. <laughs> oh, see, I'm a pastor at a church here in town and blah, 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 blah. It was the other guy. So when it's the other kind, they want to know a billion things. So for whatever the reason being, God keeps bringing me into the path of various Mormons. Turns out my new friend is a Mormon. And for the next 90 minutes to two hours, we talk about God and Jesus and faith and salvation and the differences between them. And the reason we didn't make it the entire way is because at about that 90 minute to two hour mark, the gentleman in front of me and to my left, right in front of him, turns around and yells, are you guys done yet? You're wearing me out back there. <laughs> and both of our eyes got really big and we looked at each other like, and we didn't know what to say. So we started whispering, but then we couldn't hear each other. <laughs> Finally, we just decided, let's not disrespect this gentleman any further. So we get to the airport, and I'm telling you, there were two other pastors from the Indianapolis area on the plane that were in the group with me, but we weren't sitting near each other, and, we, and I'm telling them about the story, and I'm like, oh, and here comes the guy. We're waiting to get baggage, and he's walking right towards me. I said, hang on, guys, and I walk over, and I stick up my hand. I, I just want to shake his hand and say, I'm sorry. And I, I made it two more hours, and I just stuck out my hand and said, hey, I just want to apologize, and he looked at me with 
anger in his eyes. And he said, no, you get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. And he walked past me, and my jaw just dropped to the ground. I was like, ah. And I turned around, I walked back to the guys, and they're like, wow, you must have really made him mad. I'm like, yeah. And here's what one of the guys said to me. He said, man, which one do you think you'll remember more, the conversation with the Mormon guy or the conversation with him just now? There, there was no doubt. I mean, I remember both, but that second conversation, I couldn't get it out of my head. I kept replaying, like, what did I say? What did I do? What was so terrible or offensive? Was I too loud? Was he just looking for peace? One of the other guys at the group that weekend said to me, he said, maybe something you said made him feel judged. I don't know. But here's the thing. Have you ever felt judged by somebody else? All right, let's raise our hands if the answer is yes. Now, have you ever been guilty of judging someone else? Let's raise your hands. Amazingly, all the same people rose their, raised their hands. That's a phenomenal little circumstance. Well, a few years back, um, something I posted, I don't even remember what it was, to be honest. I, I posted something on Facebook, and somebody I know and love very dearly wrote back to me and said, don't you think you shouldn't put that on Facebook? I said, why? And they said, don't you think it's judgmental? I said, I don't understand why that's judgmental. And they said, well, don't you know that Jesus says, and then they quoted this little passage to me. Here we go, ready? Matthew chapter seven, verse one. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And what this person who loves me was saying is, what you're doing right now is you're being harsh and critical and judgmental of others. And Jesus says, we should not judge. So, last time I'm going to ask you to raise your hand until I ask you again. Um, how many of you believe that the Bible teaches we should not judge? Raise your hand. How many of you believe that we should judge? Raise your hand. How many of you don't want to raise your hand because you aren't sure the answer? Because you forgot deodorant? Because you feel stupid when you do it? All right, good. All right, good. Here's what the Bible teaches about judging in five seconds or less. You ready? Write this down. You're never going to want to forget this. Everything else I say today would be based off this. You ready? It's complicated. Let's pray. It is complicated. Why is it complicated? Well, because whenever the Bible says anything, you have to dig for the meaning, okay? Don't just take it at its face value. This is how you end up with really, really bad theology. This is where the prosperity gospel comes from. This idea that God just wants you to be healthy, rich, and, and whatever, and so therefore, you know, do everything you can to make more money. That's not a biblical teaching, but there are passages that look like that. I don't think God is anti-money, nor is God anti-health, but that's not God's end game for your life. And so what we have to do is when we read stories, when we read teachings, especially by Jesus and the apostles, those appointed by God to teach us and help us understand what God expects from us in the world, you got to dig deep. you got to put on your thinking cap, right? When you're a kid, remember, strap that baby on and dig into what it says and what it means. So what we're going to do is take a journey through a few passages that talk about judging. And they all come out of one book, 1 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, all of the passages will be on the screen here for you, so you won't have to think too much about it. 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at a number of passages, but I have to set up where all of these are coming from. Now, there's lots of passages on judging that we can look at, but we're just going to look at a few in this book. So Corinth is an important city. It's a seaport city in ancient Rome. Because of that, it uh, <clears throat> has a lot of visitors, 
merchants and people traveling around by boat, coming in off the water, looking for a place to stay, looking to do business. Uh, They had taken up the pantheon of Roman gods. If you don't know what that means, that means Rome had many, many, many gods. They had gods for different things. One of the gods that they had a temple for in Corinth is the, the goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite, if you don't know anything about her, Google it later, but only with your spouse or best friend present, all right? In Aphrodite's temple, they had the temple prostitutes. A temple prostitute was simply women that they would recruit. They would work in the temple, and people would come up. They'd make some sort of offering to Aphrodite, which they would use, take the money to improve the temple and other things, and then spend some time with these prostitutes. Ironically, there also was a temple at the bottom of the hill, and I always forget the name of this particular Roman god that they had the temple to, and people would come down, and in our uh, archaeology and our excavating, they've actually found clay genitalia parts made, and what we believe happened is they would go up the hill to Aphrodite, they would worship with the temple prostitutes, they would come back down and then pray for this other god to take away the uh, transmitted diseases that they picked up when they went up. Corinth, in a lot of ways, looks like America. One of the major thinkings and beliefs in Corinth, let's talk about the church, talk about Corinth itself, was um, eat, drink, and be merry. Do whatever you want. You you can do anything. It's okay. So when the gospel came to Corinth and a group of people believed in Jesus, they were coming out of extreme pain and brokenness. We find in the Corinthian church people who have major alcohol problems. We find people who had major sexual brokenness. So much so that we know that there were actually homosexuals in the Corinthian church. And in chapter six, I believe it's in verse 11, Paul says, some of you used to be drunkards. Some of you used to be sexually immoral. Some of you used to be idolaters. Some of you used to be greedy. Some of you used to be homosexual offenders. That's what you were. But now you have been bought. You've been sanctified. You've been glorified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't go back into the old way of living. But because what's happening at Corinth is the old ways were not being left behind, the church had lost its power. See, your power comes, yes, through faith, but through faithful living. When we connect our faith to our lives, faith was never just supposed to be an ethereal idea about, well, yeah, I believe in God, and well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but something that drives me to live in a certain way. So what's happening in Corinth is this. Let's dig through a few chapters. First Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 2. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? What? What? Let's stick with me. It gets worse. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Some of your mind just went, what? Well, let's unpack as much as we can in 30 seconds so we can move on to the next passage. Ready? I'll leave you with lots of questions, not a lot of answers, because it's complicated. But here we go. First thing you need to know, what's happening in Corinth is because they are carnal Christians, they have said they love Jesus, but they've not changed their life, they don't have the wisdom to discern very many things. And what's happening is lawsuits are popping up in the Corinthian church. You've got one Christian taking another Christian before the magistrate. So court looked totally different then than it does for us today. So today, you might file a suit, then you know, go before a jury of your peers, you make their case, they make your case, or whatever, you make their case, they make their case, and then you know, the, the jury decides who's right, who's wrong. They didn't have a jury back then. 
It was a magistrate, and he would listen, and it depended on what kind of mood he was in that day, and he would do his best to make a decision and move on. And Paul is literally criticizing and rebuking the Corinthian church. He's saying, how dare you, Christian, take another Christian to court? Do you not have anybody in your midst who's wise enough to figure this out with you? What's going on? Well, Paul is chastising them because part of what he's saying is one day you're going to judge the whole world, but you can't judge who's right in this situation. Did you know you're actually going to judge angels one day, and yet you can't figure out who's right or wrong here? And then he goes on and he says in chapter 6, I think it's right around verse 7, he says, you know what? You would have been better off to lose. Let that other person have the money. Be wronged. Be hosed than to go into court and shame the name of Jesus Christ publicly. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? So what's going on here? Well, a few very quick things. Whatever judging the world, whatever uh, judging angels means here, we aren't 100% sure. No pastor, no theologian, anybody who claims they know, they don't know. They don't know. None of us know for sure. But we know this much. When Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, we are now told in Revelation 2, he stands on the throne with God in heaven, and he is the final judge. And one day, because we believe in him and trust in him, we will reign with Christ. So whatever authority that Christ has, he is giving to us to reign with him. So one day, we will judge the world. Perhaps this means our lives will pronounce judgment on those who are cruel and harsh and never receive God's grace and mercy. Most likely, this means judging um, angelic demons, demons who were once angels serving God and turned away from him and are currently active in our lives. And though you can't see them, you feel the effects of them every day. And perhaps one day when we reign with Christ, we too will judge them because of our lives and our hearts staying committed to our heavenly father in spite of the temptation and the pressure they put on us. Whatever it means, it means this. You have special authority in Jesus Christ. Church, don't lose that. It's a gift. It's a gift. But what does that mean in terms of judging? Let's keep looking. 1 Corinthians Chapter 5, we're going to work our way backwards now. Chapter 5. Paul writes this. I'm going to read it and then I'll tell you what's happening. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Wait a minute. I thought, judge not lest you be judged, but Paul already said, I passed judgment. So does that mean we're not to judge? I know what it is. It must be that the Greek word here for judge doesn't mean the same thing that Jesus meant, and it's an English translation problem. Nope. It means this. See, what's going on in 1 Corinthians 5 is because the church of Corinth is celebrating grace at the expense of truth, they are celebrating the fact that there is actually a man in their midst who is sinning sexually in such a way that even the world looks at it and goes, ew. Here's how that looks. We don't know. There's a lot we don't know, but we know this much. He's sleeping with his dad's wife. Most likely it's not his mother because it would have just said he's sleeping with his mama. Instead, it's his dad's wife. So it's possible his mom died, his dad remarried, it's possible his dad divorced, it's very, very, very popular in Corinth. It could be this is his stepmom or whatever it is. It could be that dad is dead. It could be that dad is alive. We don't know. All we know is there's a dude who's sleeping with his probably stepmom and the church is going, isn't this cool? Grace is awesome. And Paul's like, no, this isn't awesome. This is evil. 
Paul, you're being judgmental. Yes, he is. So much so that he goes on, look at verse nine and 10. There's lots, you can read about this later. In verse nine, he says this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you have to leave the world. No, I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. Oh, wait a minute. That's pretty judgmental. Like, that's judgy as judgy gets. But do you see what Paul's trying to do? So here's my fear that anybody visiting with us today or watching online and, and you don't really understand biblical stuff, I'm about to do something Jesus told me not to do. But see, I have got to teach my people on this, so I'm just asking you to be gracious and just listen in. Paul's not talking about people who aren't Christians. If you're visiting with us today, you're watching online, Paul is not talking about you. In fact, he's going out of his way to let you know he's not talking about you. If you have not given your life to Jesus, you don't have to play by the rules we have to play by. You're playing a different game than we're trying to play. And you know what? Keep doing your thing. Our hope is not to judge you. Our goal is not to judge you. Our mission is not to judge you. Paul is going out of his way to say that. But if you claim to love Jesus, and you claim to have surrendered your life to Jesus, and there's nothing in your life that looks different than before you knew Jesus, Paul says, man, the rest of us ought to have nothing to do with you. Why is that? Let this sink in for a minute. Because to judge in this way is to discern someone's life in a way that is helpful to them. By the church affirming this man's choice, they are essentially saying it's okay to live however you want to live. But the Bible goes out of its way to say it's not okay to just live however you want to live. We need to live in a way that is honoring to everything that was given to us, mainly Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. So in this way, what Paul's doing is discerning this man's life and he's chastising the church and saying, isn't there anybody wise among you who can look at this situation and deal with it and know what to do and to help the man? By telling him what he's doing is not wrong, you're letting him continue in his sin. And then he goes on again in chapter five, chapter six, he says, and don't you know that the drunkard and the swindler and the idolater and the adulterer, don't you know that they will not inherit the kingdom of God? If you simply let this man continue in his sin, you will lead him right to his destruction one day. If you love him, call him back from his sin and into life. Is that judgmental? I think we gotta start to define what judgmental means. Take a look, let's keep going. Let's finish this little section here. What business is it of mine, Paul says, to judge those outside the church? But are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Then he quotes this passage, expel the wicked person from among you. 
I wish I had more time just to spend on this. But let me just give a little tidbit, okay? What does it mean to dispel a wicked person from among you? In order for a person to be wicked, they have to be caught in unrepentant, hard-hearted, braggadocious, ongoing sin. They will not change. They will not repent. They will not turn back to God. And then in that regard, when you come to them and you love them enough to speak truth to them, in other words, what Paul's saying is if they're that way, if they're saying, this is who I am, only God can judge me, then you are to say, you know what? I need to be very careful. I need to be very, very careful that when other people see you and me together, they don't get confused and they don't think that you are okay and that your lifestyle is okay. This is actually extremely rare. The vast majority of the time when people have come to me and said, Matt, we think you're living in sin. I am quick to say, you know what? You're right. And when I have gone to brothers and sisters in the faith and said, you know what? I see something in you that I don't know you see. And I love you too much to keep letting you go this way. They may not like it. They may even get angry at first. But when they go away and think about it and the spirit starts to work on them, they come back and say, you know what? You're right. Because here's the thing, none of us need to be surrounded by yes men and yes women. Did you know that? I actually believe it's very dangerous for me to have people in my life who only tell me good job. I've even encouraged this in my own kids, which drives me bonkers when they hold me accountable. The other day, we're playing in my backyard, and um, uh, the ball had gone over our fence. And so I looked at one of my little boys, and I was like, I'll beat you to the ball. But to get to the ball, we had to run out this part of the fence, over into the neighbor's yard, all the way down the fence line, all the way over, get the ball, throw it back in play, and race back. Well, <clears throat> I let him beat me to the ball. Let him beat me. And um, when we got there, we chucked it over the fence, and one of my boys was already waiting there for me, by the way. He jumped over the fence, and I said, boys, we're not gonna jump over the fence, all right? It's gonna break the fence. I just fixed it the other day. I think I talked about that in one of my sermons. We're not gonna jump over the fence. So they go running around. They've already got a head start. And I'm thinking to myself, I think I could clear it. <laughs> in fact, I'm pretty sure if I jump and I do one of those moves like I learned in judo back when I was a teenager, I can learn, land, roll. I'll have the ball. I'll be standing there. What's up? What took you so long? So I step back <clears throat> two or three steps and I run towards the fence and I stop. Right, let me try this again. And I back up. I got plenty of time. I got to go all the way down, all the way up, all the way around and over to the ball. And I run up to the fence, and right as I'm about to jump, I realize I'm not going to jump with both feet because I'm afraid I'm going to land on my head. So I'm just going to jump one foot than the other. But the fence is taller than I am, which is not hard to do. And if I continue forward, this isn't going to go well later. I'm going to split the fence. And at that point, I decided to save myself. And I pushed off the fence, and I swung one leg over, and it already wasn't comfortable. So now I just went ahead and stuck it on the fence, and I'm standing on the fence. And I got two choices, go back or go forward. I went forward, I got the ball, and they come up two seconds later like, Dad, you lied to us. You said we couldn't use the fence. To which I tried to explain to them my motives were pure. My ability wasn't. They didn't buy it. I finally, after my sons were very upset, had to look at them and say, your daddy was wrong. I was wrong. I told you not to do something, and then I did it, and I'm sorry. And then one of them looked at me like he always says, said, why did you do that, Dad? Because I hate to lose. 
And I felt free. Like as soon as I said it, I was like, and the truth shall set you free. And I said, you know what? I'm so glad that I gave you this opportunity to learn from my weakness. He didn't buy it. So I don't need people in my life who just let me skate by. I need friends and loved ones who are willing to speak the truth in love, no matter how hard or painful or difficult it might be. Because I want to live my life for Jesus, and I want to get to the last day, and I want my heavenly father to look at me and say, well done, good and faithful. That's what I want. Let's keep going. There's some more wisdom share here, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. And we're going backwards. Now, what's happening in chapter 4 is there's fighting in the church. Who's ever heard of such a thing? And the fighting looks like this. There are three main leaders who've poured into the church. Peter, who's also called Cephas here. Apollos, who's like the sharp young preacher of the day. Like everybody wants to hear him. And Paul. Now Paul tells us he came to Corinth boring. I came to you without any displays of power or great attractive speech. He wanted to come to them only with the power of the Holy Spirit. He worked hard and humbly among them to win their love and affection. But when others started showing up and created division in the church, people started saying, well, I was baptized by Peter. And I was baptized by Apollos. Well, Apollo said this. Well, Paul said this. Well, I like him better. Well, I like him better. And there's fighting. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? Who is Matt Nickerson? Who is John Caldwell? Who is Aaron Brockett? Who is Andy Stanley? Who is Craig Groeschel? Who are these people? They are servants of God. So if one of them plants a seed and one of them waters it and one of them brings about the harvest, who cares? Who cares? It's all God. He's living in us and through us. It's all from him and for him and by him. But then also the other side of that is Paul is being accused of all kinds of unfair things. Accusations follow Paul everywhere he goes. There's a group of people, we call them the Judaizers. They're Pharisees, sometimes Pharisaical Christians, and they come in and teach a different message and they contend against Paul and the church all the time. And so lies and rumors are getting spread all the time and it's running rampant in Corinth. In fact, think about this for a minute. Paul is writing this letter to a group of people. He's not even there. I mean, that puts gossip in a whole new context. It's not gossip if you go to somebody who can do something about the problem. It's gossip if you just sit around talking about somebody so you feel better about yourself. So Paul's writing to them to address all this, and he says this, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. What he's talking about is himself and Apollos and Cephas. He's saying, God has entrusted me with you. So it's important that I do something with what God has given me. Man, that verse haunts me sometimes. And I've been given a trust to be your pastor. That's a big deal to me. But you've been given a trust as a parent in your home You've been given a trust in your company as an employee. And all of these things ultimately came from God who gave the authority and the responsibility down to somebody who gave it to you. It's a trust. And you will be expected to prove yourself faithful. He goes on, notice this. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. You know what Paul just said? Paul just said, only God could judge me. Only God could judge me. In fact, he goes on. (laughs) I don't even judge myself. Is anybody else confused yet? He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. What does this mean? Now, here's what Paul's trying to get to. And and you gotta read it all in context to get the whole weight of it. I'm just giving you a short version of a tough passage. Here's what he's trying to get to. He's simply trying to say, you know what? I don't really care what you think of me. Because my conscience is clear. I've worked the hardest I know how. I've done the best that I know to do. My conscience is clear. Okay, so first of all, 
Is your conscience clear? Sometimes when we judge others, the reason that we're judging them is because our conscience isn't clear. Have you noticed that? What drives you bonkers about others sometimes is the very thing that drives you bonkers about yourself. So your insecurity feeds your judgment. Paul's saying, my conscience is clear. The Bible talks about this over and over and over again. Paul talks about it, Peter talks about it. The Bible talks about, a lot about it. Making sure that you live your life in such a way that the world, when they look at you, have no big stone they could throw at you. They have no real point to stand on when they're accusing you. Is that true of you? Now, here's what's interesting. Paul says, I know in my conscience, it's clear. I've done everything I could to live for my father and honor him. But you know what? I don't even trust my own conscience. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. Do you get what he's saying there? My conscience is clear, but you know what? I might be wrong. Do you know what Paul just modeled for us? Humility. All right, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand again. How many of you are humble in here? kind of a weird thing, isn't it? You can't raise your hand, can you? Because if you raise your hand, you're not humble. And yet, did you know that you can't even come to God without humility? There are certain sins that I struggle with and other ones that just don't bother me at all. They're just not a temptation for me. You know what's easy? It's easy for me to look at you, you who struggle with the things I don't struggle with and judge you. It's easy to do that in a very unhealthy, unbiblical way. I remember I was sitting down with a friend of mine and he and I share similar sin struggles. And uh, he was talking about this group that he was in once and how the group was this open just place where they were sharing. And he was sharing with me some of the other struggles of some of the other guys in this group. And uh, I, I threw out a very judgmental statement. I was like, wow, I just can't believe blah, 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 blah. And he looked at me and he said, you know what, Matt? One of the things I've learned is give me enough time without any accountability or correction and I could end up where they are. You know what? The Lord corrected me that day because I walked away going, you know what? I just got rebuked by my friend and he probably didn't even mean to. He was as humble and non-judgmental as he could be, but what he said to me is, you know what? I need to lead with mercy. I need to lead with understanding my own flesh, my own propensity to sin, and understanding that the spirit inside me longs for me to be righteous and is working on me in the same way that he is in you. See, when I start to put all of these pieces together, I get a little bit clearer picture, though it's still a little bit complicated. Look at the rest of what Paul says. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. All right, first thing you need to note here, a day of reckoning is coming. There's going to come a day. It's gonna happen at your last breath or the day that Jesus returns, whichever comes first. And we will all stand before Jesus, and everything done in secret will be exposed for all to see. God will judge the motive of your heart, not just the activity of your hand. So were you really being kind to that person, or were you being flirtatious? Were you really doing good business or were you being conniving? Were you really telling the truth or were you really being deceiving? Were you really being pure or were you really sneaking around? Have you really had no more of that thing or just where nobody could see it? 
Have you really been gossipy? It's just that nobody knew. Do you see how this plays out? Paul's saying, one day there's gonna come a reckoning for all of us and everything that's done in secret, in darkness, will be brought into the light. So be very careful what you do in secret. Paul says, my conscience is clear, but I might, be, I might not be innocent. So if Paul might not be innocent, then what is he resting his hat on? You know what he's resting his hat on? Grace. The very thing that brought us to where we are anyway. The problem in the Corinthian church is they're hyper-celebrating grace. The problem in Jesus' comment about, you know, judge not lest you be judged is Grace. How do I walk in grace and truth in all situations? Well, I think Jesus gives us the best advice. Let's come back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice what Jesus didn't say here is don't judge. No, in fact, he said, judge not, or you will be judged. In fact, by the standard you use to judge others, you will be judged. What's he saying? If you can look at somebody else and say, that is wrong, that lifestyle is wrong, but you yourself are living any kind of that lifestyle, then on the last day when you stand before Jesus and he says, what did you do with your life? And you can simply say, well, I didn't do this, I didn't do this. I'll say, yeah, but you did that. And you judged them for doing the same thing. And you knew better. I know you knew better because you said it. You talked about it. You gossiped about it. You rumored about it. You attacked them with it. And yet you did the same thing. So what does Jesus say then? So everybody live in sin and don't say anything to anybody else. No, that's what our culture says. Our culture says just live however you want to live. Who are you to judge me anyway? You're right. I'm nobody to judge you because I'm a sinner. And what Jesus said is, you know what the problem is? The problem is you got a plank sticking out of your eye. And I've gotten splinters on this stupid thing all morning. And the person you're talking about has a little speck of wood. And you look at their speck and you go, oh man, I think I need to help you with that. Now, are you going to be able to pull a speck out of somebody else's eye when you got this bad boy sticking out of yours? You're going to be poking them in the eye all day long. They're going to go, dude, really? I mean, this is called hyperbole, right? Jesus is being extreme on purpose because anybody who gets the analogy would go, yeah, that'd be dumb. Could you imagine, I mean, take it literally. Could you imagine somebody comes up to you, doesn't matter if it's a friend, a neighbor, a parent, a child, whatever, and they go, oh, dude, let me help you with that. You're just like, get out of here. Are you crazy? Imagine if your doctor's like, and by the way, I have a doctor in my life like this. He's like, you know, you really ought to blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, do you? Because I can see you don't. He's like, yeah, I really struggle with that. Like, you know, a doctor giving you advice they don't practice is terrible. You know, pastors are the same way. And so are parents, and so are children, and so are neighbors. The word hypocrite literally means actor. So we call actors and actresses, people in Hollywood that. In Greek, it was the word hypocrite. We've taken it and meant something else by it. So all the word hypocrite meant was you're somebody who's acting the part. You're acting like you can see clearly when you can't. So what's Jesus say? Well, they just don't say anything. Just walk around with planks sticking out of your eye. No. Pull that sucker out so that you can look at your friend and help them. Are Christians to judge? If by judge you mean condemn, absolutely not. Judging is only in the hands of the Lord. Are Christians to discern? Yes. But who do we discern? The believer. 
not the unbeliever. And what I mean by that is, if you have somebody who's confessed that they know and love Jesus and they have clear sin in their life, something that's seen and documented, something you notice, then you know what? Clear the junk out of your own eye and go to them in humility and say, I love you too much to say nothing. Two questions as we close. Number one, got any planks you need to deal with? A day of reckoning is coming for all of us where what is in darkness will be brought into the light. Is there anything you need to deal with today? If so, we're about to take communion. This is the perfect time to deal with it, to bring it before your heavenly father. And he tells us in 1 John, anyone who confesses their sin, he is faithful and will forgive. Number two, do you know anybody with a piece of... uh, Sawdust in their eye? Is there anybody throughout this message God's been bringing to mind? Somebody you need to go to and say, brother, sister, I love you too much. I need to say this. If so, why don't you spend that communion time praying, asking God to humble you? Remember this, mercy is better than judgment, the Bible says. Pray that God would give you his heart for them. Pray that God would give you his passion for them, that you're trying to call them out of darkness and into light. You're not trying to judge them. You're not trying to condemn them. You're not trying to mock them. You're simply trying to lead them into a place where they're gonna thrive in their relationship with God because you know whatever's going on in their life is killing them right now. So pray that God would give you wisdom and discernment. Pray that he would go before you and prepare their heart, that that they would receive the truth that you're bringing to them. And if the Lord you sense tells you don't go, maybe he's sending somebody else, listen to that. But don't run away from the hard conversation. Let's pray. Father, like Paul, I have to rest in grace. Because God, like every single one of us in here, we have no hope apart from it. We all know, God, one day we will stand before you, our lives laid bare, and you will be the only judge, the one who looks at our lives, looks at not just our actions, but the motives behind our actions, and you, God, you've given that authority to Jesus to judge us. But I also know, God, if we are in Jesus Christ, we will be judged with mercy. We will claim his blood over our lives. We will claim his freedom. We will claim his life. Paul seems to have absolute peace that while he doesn't even know his own heart, Father, he knows who will judge him and he is good. So Father, create in us a phenomenal church, a church, God, where we love you enough to connect with you on the deepest levels and most vulnerable places of our lives, but also, God, a place where we will connect with each other in an open and honest way a way that allows us to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We love you, Father. We thank you for grace. In Jesus' name.